0: 1947, a young man named Glenn Chambers was waiting in an airport to take off for South America to fulfill his dream to be a missionary with voice of the Andes in Ecuador. As a young New Yorker, he had prepared for many years for this moment, Bible training, prayer, radio work, and now the time had come. He was at the airport and had some minutes before he needed to board the airplane, and so he found a magazine that was lying around, and and as he flipped through it, he found a page that was mostly white space. It was an advertisement of some kind. and had one word printed in the center, and he tore that page out, and he scribbled a note around it to his mother, a note of appreciation for all that she had done and expressing his barely contained excitement for the beginning of what he anticipated would be his life work. He stuffed it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and mailed it to his mother in New York. But there would be no more letters, because that night the DC-4 on which he was riding exploded into the jagged 14,000-foot peak of El Tablazo in Bogota, Colombia. What was left of the Avianca flight on which he was bound for Quito, Ecuador, fell down the mountainside in a flame into a ravine, and the night returned to darkness and to cold and to silence. His mother received his letter after she received news that her son had died. When she opened the envelope, what she didn't see was first was the the scribbled note that he had written to her. What screamed at her from the page was one word printed on the advertisement, on the page, it was the word, why? That's the question of life. It's the question at some point. Every person asks himself or herself, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? It's the question that uh, is asked by a young mother when she buries her firstborn child and comes home with empty arms. It's the question... Asked by every child who stands by the casket of a beloved grandfather who has died in old age. It's a question of every wife whose husband dies in warfare, or every father whose son is killed in a drug raid, or every girl whose friend dies of an overdose. It's a question asked by every person whose friend or relative is a cancer victim. Or an AIDS victim or a shooting victim. It's the question that punctuates life, and we ask it not all of the time, but at every funeral, at every casket, at every graveside, why? Now, the Bible gives answers to that question, but I, I have to tell you the answer is not real satisfying, and it's not because there's anything wrong with the answer to the question why that's given in the Bible. It's because knowing the answer to that question is not really the answer. It's not really what we're looking for. It's only an explanation. It's like knowing why polio destroys tissue or knowing how cancer cells spread throughout the liver. Knowing how something occurs, knowing why a person dies that way, it's interesting, but it's not the real issue, the irreal issue, is to stop it. We're not really asking the question why. We're asking the question where wherefore, to what end? What is this all about? Is this all there is? That's why the heart is not satisfied with an explanation. We want a solution. You know, death, not just disease and tragedy, and tragedy death is like that, yeah. One of the most fascinating books I ever read was the book How We Die by Sherwin Newland, an MD who teaches history at a medical school. And it's a long book, but it explains all the different ways in which people die. It was a a very fascinating book. The fact is it doesn't solve the real question that you and I have. Understanding the process of dying is interesting to physicians and researchers, but it doesn't really answer the question we have. Um, Answering The metaphysical questions about death, why there is death, spiritually speaking, is interesting to theologians and philosophers, but it doesn't really answer the question that we want to know the answer to. We want to know more than why. We want to know what can be done about it. Well, today, we celebrate the answer, those of us who are Christians. We celebrate it with singing, and we read the Bible and the passages that it says about it, and we talk about it, we pray about it, thanking God. And the answer is not just the reason for death, but it explains its reversal, what God is going to do with death. And the answer is found in the first words of the passage that our sister read to us a few minutes ago. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits in the Old Testament were like the first things produced by a fruit-bearing plant, the grain that first springs from the head, or, or the apples that are first produced on the free tree. And, and they were thought to be incredibly important, so important that they were sacred to God. And the festival of first fruits was where they gathered the first fruit and they gave it to God. And it's because it was symbolic. It was symbolic. It was like a physical promise. It was a promise that the harvest that would follow would be magnificent. And this says that Christ is like the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, a euphemism, a polite way of saying who have died. And that's what we want to think about this morning. It seems that the Corinthian church had the same problem that we have today in some sense. It was under a similar misunderstanding of people today. Many of them seem to think this life is all there is. That if you miss something in this life, something that you were expected to have happen, then you're going to miss anything else because there's nothing else to follow. So what happened in the Corinthian church is this. They had been taught by the Apostle Paul that Jesus died and rose from the dead. They had trusted in Christ and, and become a fellowship of Christians meeting together in a local church in that city. They were like a community, a new community of God's people, and together they anticipated the return of Christ and his establishment of glory in his kingdom, but what they anticipated was that was about to occur, like in the immediate future, and there was then some time that passed, and over the few years from Paul first coming and the point where he wrote this letter, some of their number had died, and they wondered, well, what happens to those who die? Have they missed this glorious future that Christ has promised? So Paul writes this letter to answer for them a whole series of questions about the resurrection and what it means. And the point that he makes ultimately is that the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus are like the crux of history, the turning point of everything. They solve the problems of life's deepest meaning, the problem of pain and suffering and even of death itself. And essentially, in the paragraph that we want to look at briefly, it tells us three things about the resurrection of Jesus. It's like it guarantees three things, and there are three things that we need to know. Let's think about them together. He says first that the resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of Christians. The resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that Christians, those connected to him, will be resurrected as well. That is the meaning of the first verse. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, Christ is only the beginning. He's like the down payment, and he's the proof that in the case of every person that dies, who falls asleep in Jesus, to use the phrase of the New Testament, we also will be raised. And then he goes on, and he says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And he he draws a parallel between Adam and Christ. The parallel is important to understand because it involves something that is the same and something that's different. And the idea is that Adam was considered in the Bible like the head of humanity. Obviously, he was the source, genetically speaking, from which all human beings have descended. And... We are physically connected to each other. We are a race, we human beings. And so we all have this genetic connection back to the first man who represented us. And he says, as in Adam all die, that is, everyone physically connected to Adam shares in his fate as the result of his sin. So also in his parallel in Christ shall all be made alive. But understand, Christ is viewed as the head of a new humanity, but he's not the physical source from which all human beings have flown. We're all descendants of Adam in the Bible's reckoning, but we're not all physical descendants of Jesus. But the, the parallel is that just as physically every human being who is connected to Adam experiences death, so a parallel is true spiritually. Those who are connected to Jesus, who find him as their head, who are connected to what he has done, they have life. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of Christians. Now, that's not only true, but he goes on, he says, secondly, the resurrection of Christ guarantees the defeat of death. Guarantees the defeat of death. It's like the beginning, that point, of the reversal of death. The death of Jesus was the sword in the heart of death. So you can picture, as Paul does in this passage, death is like personified. He pictures it as though it were an actual person who has feelings and responses, you can imagine death at the cross. Death had now overseen, so to speak, the suffering of the Son of God. He had been spit upon, his beard pulled out, he'd been struck in the head with a reed. Uh, He'd had a crown of thorns put on his head, carried the beam of the cross, At his nails, the nails pierced his hands and feet. A spear was thrust in his side. And finally, on the cross, he said, it is finished. And at that moment, we would imagine that death rejoiced, felt glee, because what he had wanted to see was accomplished, the defeat of God himself. The eternal, the second person of the Trinity, was wrapped in a shroud and laid in a tomb, and death was victorious. And yet the Bible tells us that it was right at that point. When the body of Jesus was laid in the tomb, that death was defeated. It's not the point when it won, it thought it won right at that point, but it was not that point, it was the defeat of death, because the death of Christ was the final defeat of death. And you might ask, well, how could that be? Well, well, he uses an image in the passage that it, it loses its sting. You know, we sang the song, it's found in the last words of this chapter, actually, where Paul quotes from the prophet Hosea, and he says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Now, when I was 11 years old, my father began to keep bees. My father, I have realized as I've gotten older, was an endlessly fascinating man, very interesting person to grow up with, and I didn't experience anything that 20 or 30 years of counseling hasn't helped me to kind of work my way through, but <laughs> this story might tell you a little bit about that. When I was 11, we had uh, a yard in which we had five or six fruit trees. They were apple trees, and my father took care of them. He sprayed them and uh, so forth. And some bees swarmed on our property. And my father thought, well, this is a good way to get bees. Now, what happens when bees swarm? Have you ever seen a swarm of bees? It's like thousands of bees hang on one another, and they form this huge clump of bees that are just hanging there, usually off a tree branch. What is in the very center of that is a queen, a new queen. It's when a hive produces a new queen, some of the bees leave with her to form a new hive, and they protect their queen because she's the source of all life. In the hive, she's the only one who can bear offspring. And they cling around her. Conventional wisdom says that when bees are swarming, they, they can't, or at least they don't sting. And you've seen pictures of bees, uh, that someone, a beekeeper, will take a big clump of the bees and hang them. You're seeing hang them on his face like a bee beard or a bee hat or hang them off his arms, you know, really interesting pictures to look at. Well, my father decided this would be the time to get bees, so he went to where he worked and he made a box that looked like a hive anyways and uh, came home. And the next morning, he got my brother and me up early, about six o'clock before school. My brother was five years older and I was 11 years old. Well, this branch that the bees were swarmed on was on a maple tree, and there was a low branch hanging down. And my father stood on one end. He was six feet tall. He was a big man. And he could hold the branch, the lower end of it. My brother was on a ladder, and he was holding the branch on the upper end above where the swarm was. And little Tommy was given the, uh, <laughs> this, you know those long poles that has these clippers at the end? You pull it, and it snaps the branch off, right? Right. Well, I know this is hard for you to believe, seeing my masculine physique at this point in my life, but I was a scrawny little 11-year-old, and I, I put the thing on the branch, and I started to pull on it, and I couldn't get it to go, and the bees fell all over me and my father. And conventional wisdom is wrong, by the way. Bees can sting when they're swarming. And what I remember is running across the yard, and they're crawling up my shirt and pants and hitting them, and so forth. And I was stung 11 times. My father was stung 33 times. I went to school, of course. (laughs) Came home at lunchtime, rather sick, and went to bed. My father had to go to the hospital after he went to work. He had to have a shot. He didn't really have an allergic reaction, but 33 times. He was a big man. He had like four chins, I remember, ears hanging down, you know. But here's the thing about bees that most people don't understand. A honeybee, man's friend, and we later kept bees. They were there at the family home until it was sold when I was about 30. Honeybees lose their stinger when they sting. Wasps don't. Yellowjackets don't. They can sting you multiple times. When a bee stings you, there are barbs on the stinger, and it sticks in your skin. And when they pull out, it pulls the whole venom sac out of their abdomen, and the bee flies off, but it has secured its death. It can never sting again. In fact, it can't really live. After that point, it goes off and dies. And that's the image the Bible uses, that what happened when Jesus died was that death lost its sting, so to speak. That's why he cries out, Oh, death, where is your sting? Because the stinger of death stuck in Jesus Christ, and all the venom of death was emptied into him. And death no longer has its sting for those who experience the benefits of what Jesus did. For those who by faith are connected to him, death is just a shadow of what it once was. It's like the bee that's lost its sting. It's still very frightful, It has all of the appearance of an enemy, but none of the power. It's powerless to bring the eternal separation from God that it once was able to bring. And as in Adam, everyone connected to him dies. So also in Christ, those who are connected to him, that is spiritually joined to him by faith, experience the reversal of death. Its eternal power is destroyed. And the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee that he will raise every person who is connected with him. And the reason that is true, the reason he guarantees the resurrection of every believer is that his very death, the death of Jesus, was the death of death itself. And finally, he says here that not only is that true, that the resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of Christians, and not only is it true that the resurrection of Christ guarantees the defeat of death, but the resurrection of Christ guarantees the final victory of God. Guarantees the final victory of God. So he says in verse 25, For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now that pictures the risen Christ raised from the dead. Now reversing all of the effects of death, and that's what the present age is, he must reign until he has put every enemy, all enemies, under his feet. Finally, death itself is completely subjugated to God. And then it goes on, verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, when that process is finished, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things and subjected under him that God may be all in all. It pictures our lives as a part of a huge tapestry that God is making. And Jesus, in this tapestry, is telling the picture of humanity from beginning to end. We see the tapestry from the backside, and all that we see are, are threads that aren't tied off and a jumble of colors. We can't understand the story that it tells, but from the other side, we will understand it someday. But that tapestry is the assurance that God's purposes will be completely fulfilled. He will tie up every loose end. He will dot every I and cross every T. And he'll put the final touch on that tapestry. And what we will find when we finally see it is we will find that the center of the whole story is the cross and the empty tomb outside of the city of Jerusalem. That is the crux of it all. It's like proof that God is going to fulfill everything that he ever said that was proved. April 5th, 33 A.D., outside of Jerusalem. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God will raise you up if you belong to him through faith. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God will completely destroy death. And even now, its shadow falls over those who belong to him. But we too will be raised from the dead and all of its effects reverse. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God will ultimately prove his right to rule over everything that he has made. So two questions before we close. The first one is this. What do you live for? What do you live for? Someday you will die. What will it all be for? Most of us only think about death at certain points that punctuate life when someone that we love or someone that we know dies. And when those moments break through, we we have to ponder the question, what is this all about? Why does life work this way? Why does it always end in death? Is this all that there is? Is there something beyond this? Many people, they go to work every day, and they work hard, and they have a, a family and kids, and they cry, and they laugh, and they enjoy things, and they sorrow at things, and they feel a lot of mundaneness as they go through life, but they sometimes wonder, what is this for? Everyone does at points. What is this for? Is there any meaning beyond simply the horizontal experience of getting through life? Well, Easter Sunday tells you that there is. There is a meaning beyond this life. This is not all that there is. But Jesus' resurrection points us beyond the grave to God's purposes. And what it tells you is that when all is said and done in life, much we will find of life has been chaffed. It's like the hard kernel on a seed of uh, a kernel of grain of some kind, and you have to break the chaff off and blow it away in order to get down to the meat and make the flour that makes the bread. Because the chaff is useless, and so much of life, not all of it, but so much of it is like chaff that's going to be blown away. And if you are privileged to lie on your deathbed and reflect on life, many people don't ever have that opportunity, but if that is your opportunity... You will look back and feel that much of it, much of the things you worried about, thought about, cried about, they weren't all that important. And sometimes the things that really mattered are the things you didn't pay much attention to. But the resurrection of Christ tells us that there is a meaning to this life that is above the surface of life. In order to consider it, we have to look up beyond the horizontal and see God. And that's what Easter Sunday reminds us. That the resurrection of Christ tells us God is a majestic king whose arms are open wide to receive those who come to him and trust in him for forgiveness and life. And he is more than able, not only to give you that life, but to give you the experience of that as you move through life. So much of the rest of life, you and I will find, will blow away in the end like dust in the wind. Don't let it all blow away. What do you live for? And secondly, what do you long for? Do you ever stop running long enough? Make the rat wheel that goes on in your heart slow down long enough? Ask yourself the question what do I really want? Or am I keeping life moving at such a pace that I can outrun, or at least think that I outrun the pain that I feel inside from not really facing what it is I long for that I don't always get? If that's true, life is a toilsome rat wheel that eventually ends in death. If there's no more to that, then life ultimately is kind of worthless and hopeless. And read the book of Ecclesiastes, that's what it's all about. What is life like under the sun? What is life like on a horizontal plane where we don't consider God and who he is? If you ask yourself the question, what do I long for, what do you find out is that what you really long for is unfulfilled. After all, think about it, it's only when you really are hungry that food is desirable. It's only when you're really thirsty that a glass of cold water is really satisfying. In the same way, in a fallen world, we are meant to experience this sense of hunger for something that we only have a taste of in the best of marriages, we only have a taste of in our children or in our jobs, we don't find the satisfaction of all that we long for because it was meant to be found only in God. In the same way that food is only really desirable when you're hungry, it's only when we fully embrace what it means to live in a fallen world and we see the reality of sin and find out that God gives us graciously a taste of what we long for, that satisfaction, that security, that sense of significance that we long for in life, he gives that to us ultimately in himself. And the eternal question, if we will not look to him, the eternal question screams up at us from the page, like the page of an advertisement that says, Why? Why does all of this happen the way it does? If you spend your life in a fallen world looking for enjoyment and meaning, You'll ultimately fail. Yet the resurrection is the reversal of that. It tells us to look up, to see the cross on which Jesus died and the tomb on which he rose from the dead and to realize that his destiny is meant to be ours as well. It it says that death, that is our greatest enemy, the final question of life, death has been defeated. And it tells us that God will be ultimately victorious. And so it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray together. Again, our Father, as we come to you, thank you that you have given to us a foretaste of the future, like a certainty. It's, It's a down payment that proves that you will come through on what you have promised and that is the resurrection of Christ. But the scripture here says that is the first fruits. It contains within it a promise that all who are connected to Christ will be raised from the dead. And even now you give life, your quality of life, eternal life, you give that to a person who trusts in you alone. Grant that we might taste that life more and more as we go through life. And we experience it in the fellowship of the people of God, through the word of God. Grant that we might taste that more and more. And as we do, we would find ourselves feeling ever more secure and certain as life is not all over. We pray this in Jesus' name.